Welcome to All Things Erie from Erie PA. I'm Kathy, your host, and before we get into our case today, I would like you to take a listen to this. Are you into the secret histories of exorcisms, Christmas massacres, killdozers, and concert disasters? How about haunted mansions, the Philadelphia Experiment, the Dorm of Death, or candy corn? Then you're going to love Ghost Town, a hilarious and sometimes not so hilarious twice-weekly podcast. On Wednesdays, we discuss the secret history of an abandoned, unexplored, haunted, or mysterious place from anywhere in the world. And on Fridays, we cover an amazing historical failure from any time in history. Ghost Town is 100% safe and legal. We guarantee it. It's also fun, spooky, and can contain a riot, a massacre, a murder, or an arch deluxe. I'm Rebecca Lieb. I'm Jason Horton. And and this this is Ghost Town. Town. And you can find Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts. Today we're going to talk about a case that takes us to the state of Virginia. Now, normally I know I try to keep cases around this area in general. Unless it's paranormal, then we have to reach out beyond the Great Lakes area. And why not? It's fun to see what's out there. I thought that I would be able to do this episode in one session. However, with the interviews from Trooper Hall, Ron Peterson, and Everett Shockley, I'm going to have to break it up into three episodes. There's just so much information, and the interviews were wonderful. These gentlemen were fabulous to talk to, and I cannot say enough how much I appreciate them taking their time to speak to me. So let's dig into the case. This case in itself is special and I'm not just saying that because of where it's at and not because of there's a book written about it and we'll get into that in in a moment or two but right now let's get into why this case is so special without giving too much away or at least try to. This case is about a young girl who was just beginning her life at college in 1980 and that seems like so long ago and the 40th anniversary of her death was this past June 28th. So it seemed appropriate that I do a podcast about Gina Renee Hall's life and her death. In this podcast, you will hear from both the author the book of the book and the prosecutor of the trial. I also had the privilege of speaking to Gina's sister and the state trooper who worked Gina's case. The trooper will be from notes that I took and Gina's sister, I had made a promise of keeping Gina's memory alive of who Gina really was as a person. First and foremost, before I begin, Gina was the victim here. And you are going to hear from myself, the author, in the notes from Trooper Hall and from Everett Shockley, that Gina was a sweet and wonderful person and that she was from a good family and that is all there is to it. Gina was a good person inside and out. And from what I read, she's what I would call pure, a pure soul. And I know I've said that before, but in this case also, it seems to be true, and I have several sources to back it up. Gina Renee Hall was born to parents of John Rufus Hall and Elena Holstein Hall. Gina had grown up in a small town in Virginia with her family and had a very normal childhood. Unfortunately, when Gina was a toddler, there had been an accident when she was two. Her pajamas had caught on fire from a gas stove, which left her burned on the right side of her body. And Gina had gone through a surgery with a long recovery time in a burn unit. And this had left scars on her right side, her right arm, her abdomen, and her right thigh. And as an adult, she felt very self-conscious about her appearance. Gina loved to dance and loved music. 
She graduated from a local high school in 1979 and attended Emory and Henry, Henry College in the fall of 1979 and then had transferred to Radford University in the spring of 1980. Gina had transferred to Radford to be closer to her sister Delena, whom she was close with. The day that Delena last saw her sister, Delena's last words to her sister were, listen to your heart and not your head. So you see on June 20, 1980, there's some confusion on this, but Gina either asked or called her or called Delena to go with her to the Marriott, but Delena had decided going against going for whatever reason. Since Delena wasn't going to go, Gina had asked Delena to borrow her brown Chevrolet Monte Carlo to go to the local dance hall to blow off some steam after the final exams. And this is where the story gets muddied because there are different versions from what people have said and what was testified to. But this is what I'm going to say because there are the facts that I have to support what I'm going to tell you. Gina left her place at 10 p.m. and arrived at the Marriott in Blackbird, Virginia at 11 p.m. to go dancing. And just to have some fun, this much, as I, this much I know is true, according to multiple sources, the trooper's notes, author Ron Peterson Jr.'s notes, the podcast WFXR Cold Case, Finding Gina Renee Hall, the, Con- the Connor Chronicles, and even court documents located on murderpedia.org, just to name a few. Who did Gina meet up with that night? What we do know is that Gina had gone out to blow off some steam after finishing finals. Anyone who's been to college knows the pressure that kids are under to finish and get good grades. And like most kids Gina's age, they were there that night doing the exact same thing. But this night would be the night that Gina Renee Hall would meet the man who would be the last person Gina would be seen with, Stephen Matson Epperly. This will be the first and last time I use his full name. According to author Ron Peterson Jr. in his book, Under the Trestle, Epperly was formal, former Virginia Tech football player and at that time a professor at the local college. Eberly was at the Marriott with a friend, Bill King, and his date at the time, Robin Robertson. Eberly arrived with King and their friends, one of whom that knew Gina. What we do know is that Eberly did dance with Gina somewhere between four and five times that night. Now again, I must say that there have been different versions of what happened this night. Because Eberly did, didn't try, just try to go with Gina, and when I was speaking to Ron Peterson Jr., one of the questions I asked was, was there anything that you edited out of your book? And his response was that there, when he was doing his research for his book, there was a girl who had reported that Epperly had been hitting on her that night, but she decided not to go with him. Now, Ron had his reasons for not putting it in his book, and you'll hear why in the interview. But I find it interesting that Epperly was just looking around for someone to be with that night. I wonder if that lady thinks about that encounter and what her thoughts are. But again, back to the case. How Epperly was able to convince Gina to leave with him, I don't know. I can guess, and that was on the ruse of meeting the rest of the group at the lake house of Bill King. Again, this is my guess, and I must emphasize my guess. And I will get into into later why it's important, so keep that detail in the back of your mind. Bill King had testified that Gina seemed confused when he saw her in the parking lot later on. Remember, confusion of who was going to the lake house, but we're going to fast forward to the point of Epperly and Gina being in the lake house. 
Here is where there is a gap, because again, we can only speculate as to what happened between the hours of 1 a.m. and 1.30 a.m. That is when Delena, Gina's sister, received a phone call from her saying, Delena saying, Gina, question, Gina, yes. Gina, I'm at the lake house. I am at the lake. Delena, what are you doing at the lake? Gina, I'm looking at it. Gina, I'm looking at it with Steve. Delena, don't forget that Gary is coming over today. Gary Bass was Delena's boyfriend at the time. Gina, I'll be home in the morning. Now, according to Delena, Gina seemed to be off. Her voice was monotoned, and that was the end of the phone call. And this was according to my conversation with Everett Shockley. Also, when I have spoken with Delena, her conversations with myself was that the references in past articles was that everybody had gotten that conversation wrong. So I wanted to make sure that when I did this conversation in this podcast, that I had it correct. So I wanted to make sure that I asked Everett Shockley what was said during the trial. Now, according to murderpedia.org by Juan Blanco, in the court documents around 3.45 a.m. and 4 a.m., Bill King and his girlfriend at the time arrived and Bill noticed that the Monte Carlo was still in front of the garage and both King and his girlfriend entered the home making loud noises, wanting their presence to be known, thinking that Epperly and Gina were being intimate. Neither had really met or knew Gina, not knowing that she was not that type of person. Both King and his girlfriend said that they had seen Epperly and the girlfriend Robinson had said that Epperly had his shirt off but neither had seen nor heard Gina at the time. Then the next exchange was Epperly saying, we're leaving, she's got to get back. Then both King and Robertson headed toward the beach and Epperly called down and said, Bill, I'll see you later, we're leaving. But again, neither either heard or saw the, the car leaving. After Epperly supposedly left with Gina, both King and Robertson headed back into the house through the sliding glass doors. And as King stepped into a wet spot, which was several feet inside and to the left of the sliding glass stores, although King didn't examine the wet spot at that time, a quick glance around the house showed that it looked in good condition. And neither King nor Robinson went into the utility room at the time because in this area that they were at was where Epperly and Gina supposedly were at the time. King had just thought that Epperly and Gina left some wet clothes on the floor at the time. But then again, why would they have had anything to worry about? They didn't think anything was wrong at the time, but they were so wrong, and their lives were going to change forever. This is when I'm going to start my notes with Trooper Hall, and I will keep calling him Trooper Hall out of respect for his position, who, by the way, was such a wonderful person to give up his time. And Trooper Austin Hall, if you are listening, thank you again for your time. It was such a pleasure speaking to you. Trooper Austin Hall, and as far as I know, no relationship to Gina Hall, has been retired now for 18 years and has been 
on the investigation of Gina since the very beginning. As a matter of fact, Trooper Hall went from going on a call to investigate an abandoned vehicle to lead investigator on Gina's disappearance because at the time there had been another incident at, that the police had been called out to. And at the first time that the police officer had come across this particular vehicle, according to Murderpedia.org by Juan Blanco, the Monte Carlo that belonged to Gina's sister had been abandoned at the end of the railroad trestle over the New River. According to a different resource, the car had been cleaned prior to Gina taking the car the night of their disappearance. The day that it was found, it had trash in it, and the door handle on the passenger side was broken. The officer who spotted it just thought it was a fisherman in, because the area was a local fishing spot. So the first time around, they thought nothing of it. The second time around, they looked more closely at it. And there's also a little discrepancy here. Um, there was a um, transcript saying that Delena, uh, in an article saying that she had friends go look for the car. However, when the call came in for an unattended vehicle and the police officer ran the plates on the car, they found the car belonged to Delena Hall and had a bolo on it, which is be on the lookout. So that is when Trooper Hall came out and started to look at the car and what they found changed everything. I asked Trooper Hall what he saw when he first looked at the car. He said one of the things he noticed was that there were spider webs over the headlights, meaning the car had been there for a while also that the driver's seat was pushed the whole way back. Now, I know I didn't talk about this earlier with the exception that Epperly was an ex-football player, but he was six foot one and Gina, well, Gina was only five foot. She was small, actually smaller than I am. And when I had my first car, I, did, I had a Monte Carlo bench seat. So any, anyone that was taller than I was, wasn't going to be very comfortable in that front seat. And personally, I think that's how I passed my driver's seat. I drove my brother's car and the trooper had to ride with me and his knees were in his ears. And I'm five foot four. That trooper just wanted out of there. That's all I'm saying. In the trunk of the car, there were bloodstains and hairs that were later described to correspond with Gina's. Remember, no DNA. What the police did do was ask the family to give them a brush or curlers that had her hair on it so they can match it that way. In the area there, there near the car, there were some bloody towels, and this was two weeks uh, after searching. There were found that the blood on it had the same blood type match, and again, no DNA, but the towels were identified as Epperly's later on. Also, there were some of Epperly's pubic hairs that were found on these towels. Now, breaking away from my notes from Trooper Hall, Epperly had gone back to the lake house while Bill King was there that Sunday. King was there playing with his son, and according to court records, there were a couple of other friends also. Epperly had stopped in to say hello, but when went to get in, went to go in to get a drink. And according to those court documents, testimony from Bill King took an unusually long time to get a drink. But what would make a professor from a college university go raging angry over a college girl? Remember, back in the beginning when I was talking about little Gina Hall and I said she had been a burn, burned as a child, well, this is when it comes into play. That night at the Marriott, when Gina met Epperly, he was all charming and handsome because he thought he could get an easy conquest. 
no, I'm guessing, just hear me out. What he didn't know was if he had taken the time to actually know Gina, and I mean actually know her, he would have found out that she was very insecure about her body because of the burns she received as a child. Also, she wasn't that kind of girl. But unfortunately, Gina met the wrong man, the man who would later turn into a beast over a simple word as no. And this isn't the Disney fairy tale that we watched growing up. This man was truly a beast. He had a a rage inside him, and he was very careful to who he showed it to. But once it was let out, it was very hard for him to contain. But the question is, who all really knew what kind of man he really was? Did his friends did his friend Bill King know? My guess is that he did. Did, he play, did his place of employment know? His parents surely knew. According to Trooper Hall, Epperly's home life was kind of broken. And I'm not saying that's to have pity by no means. This is to have an understanding of where his rage came, is coming from. Epperly has two brothers and a sister, and his mother was the dominant one of the household. And his mother knew that he had anger issues and wanted him to be treated for it. But that was the one time the father stepped up and said no. I mean, really? The one time you step up to your wife and it's when you see that your kid is out of control? Nice. But then again, this could be where Epperly gets his rage from, for women from. But please remember, I'm not a psychologist. I'm just taking a guess here, and I've worked with kids for many years. Not only that, the ladies that are listening to this, you're really going to enjoy this one. Epperly had two prior rape charges against him before this. And on top of that, there were a couple of women who, because they were very afraid of him, spoke or wrote letters about Epperly. He had to beat on women before he could have sex, even if it was consensual. But what does this all come down to? Was it that he was afraid of his performance? Not my theory, personally. I think he was a, I think he was a sadomasochist and a serial rapist. And with his rage issues, it just snowballed from there. But there could be a psychological reason behind what he did. This guy was a ticking time bomb. There were rumors that floated around town about Epperly and women. And it was, if you went on a date with him, you were expected to know that you would be having sex. Period. End of story. Whether you wanted to or not. And remember, this guy worked at a college. He worked around young girls that just got out of high school and just either turned 18 or had turned 19. Remember, these kids are considered adults, but they're just starting out in life. And a professor, really? You needed to go hang around college kids? You're an adult. Well, supposedly an adult. But let's get back to the case here. When this all was all happening, the car was found on a Monday. And then by Tuesday, there was a broadcast on the radio with Gina's description. Bill King was speaking, and again, according to, Dor- to court documents, to Epperly, and had advised him to go speak with the police. That way, quote, it wouldn't look like you you have anything to hide. But Epperly's response was asking Bill King, who did you tell? And urged King to go tell those that he knew not to say anything, just kind of talk it down and don't broadcast it. Who the hell says that kind of stuff? Any person who knows anything, you get an attorney. I don't care if you did it or not. And you just get your butt to the police station and you get out in front of it. Because if they have to come looking for you, then they start to think you had something to hide. Then Epperly goes to another friend 
named William Cranwell and asked if his brother would be willing to represent him. Epperly then twice goes on to ask, quote, if there was anything they could do if they didn't have a body, which really wasn't smart. I mean, why not just say I'm guilty and leave it right there? And at this point, no one had even mentioned Gina being a body, which I mean, really just gives it away. However, according to court documents and other sources, and I must be clear here, this is according to what was testified in court, not my personal opinion. Bill King testified that he went to the police and that he had accompanied them to the lake house while they searched it. The police found an ankle bracelet that Gina had been wearing the night she had gone to the Marriott to go dancing. Later, King testified that he confronted Epperly about if Epperly had killed Gina. And Epperly's reply was, quote, I don't know anything about it. And, quote, we'll just have to wait and see. Question, who makes a statement like that? It's either a fast and hard no or you don't say anything. No, am I wrong? I don't know. I've never been in that type of situation. Now, as the police are searching the house, they notice that the house is clean, like immaculate clean. But as the investigators keep going over the house, they find that there was blood and hair on a golf shoe and blood and hair on a dustpan and blood and hair on the gasket of a refrigerator door, also on the refrigerator door itself. There looked to be like there was something there and this is according to, with my interview with Everett Shockley, there was a bolt on the refrigerator door that had to be removed and King himself lifted that door off and underneath they found a pool of blood that hadn't been cleaned. A large blood stain more than a foot across was found inside the living room and had been bleached out to a faded pink. Blood stains had also been found in the recreation room downstairs in two different places. There was also one 18 inches wide and found slightly to the left of the sliding glass door. Do you remember that wet spot that Bill King stepped into? That was the one. And there was also blood stains found on a wooden leg of a chair that was also to the left of the sliding glass door. There were some also smaller stains that were found on a light switch in a bathroom and faucet handle in a downstairs bathroom and on the light switch of a mid-level bathroom where a bath mat went missing. Also 15 inches from the utility door, there was a blood stain size of a meat platter. There was also blood, uh, tiny blood droplets found on the walkway in front of the glass door in the driveway near the garage where Delena's car was. Testimony later stated that there had never been blood stains in those areas of the home before. And according to testimony from King's parents, they had left their home in good condition and that there were no issues that they knew of. And of course, there were some items missing when they had returned. There were a couple bath towels, a bath mat, a different bathroom, a, a bath mat from a different bathroom on the mid-level floor, some paper towels, a can of bathroom cleaner, and a quilt from a bedroom on the mid-level floor. What happened this night? What would have made this guy explode on Gina? How did this go down? At this point, Gina has been missing for days. The police were finding evidence in the lake house that belonged to King family and along the route that the car was found under the trestle. This is when Epperly decides to go to the police and it was Trooper Hall that was the one that saw to the interview of Epperly. But Epperly couldn't help himself to be 
who he was with other troopers, which was cocky. Some have described Epperly as an Eddie Haskell, or for the younger listener, as Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy. But the best description I've heard about him was Biff Tanner from Back to the Future, just better looking and smarter. And anyone who has seen the movie knows that Biff had a horrible temper and was ready to a fight at a moment's notice. The reason Epperly was going to the police was because the fact that they still had not found Gina's body. He had to make it look like he didn't have a connection, according to transcripts and my conversation with Everett Shockley. Epperly said that she had dropped me off at my house and I drove. We switched, which would initially account for the seat being pushed all the way back. And then I gave her directions, which according to Delena, Gina didn't need directions. She knew the area very well. And the quote, giving her directions part, we'll get back to. However, with Trooper Hall, Epperly was nothing but respectful. His responses were, yes, sir, no, sir. Why the difference? Epperly wasn't afraid to hide his temper. Once in a traffic stop, Epperly was just the passenger. Epperly pulled the driver out and beat the man severely just for getting pulled over, all for a traffic stop. And he wasn't even the subject of the stop. His temper was volatile, to say the least. But needless to say that Epperly was the number one suspect at this time. After 10 to 11 days of Gina's disappearance, it had also rained. Also, depending on the source you're reading for those days, a tracker with his dog was brought in. And this person was not from the area and both, according to sources, were proven trackers. The dog had been proven in other cases to have tracked other cases and had been successful. The scent to use the the scent for the dog to scent him was Epperly's underwear and had been obtained by Officer Gerald Williams. The tracking dog name was Harris Second, and with being scented with Epperly's underwear, and I must point out this would also be the first time Virginia's court allowing a tracking dog evidence in court, the dog followed the scent trail over the railroad trestle and across the river and followed through hunting trails that were known to Epperly, not to the tracker or the dog. And the dog tracked straight to Epperly's front door of his home. The other thing that I must point out about where the dog had tracked along the hunting trails, they were all by where the evidence had been found while searching for Gina. The other thing that they did was that they bought towels that had looked like the one was found for searching for Gina. The towels were laid out and the dog was scented again and the dog went straight to the towel for the evidence. The last time they used the dog, they took the dog to the place where Epperly was being interrogated and the dog was scented again and he went straight to Epperly's car door. Then he continued on and the dog went straight inside to the station and the door where Epperly was being, uh, where Epperly was sitting at. He didn't go inside the do- inside the room, but he went straight to that door. When told of what hap- happened, Epperly's reply was, that's a damn good dog. He was said to have repeated those words a couple of times. And that's where we're going to leave the case t- for today. There's m- so much more to tell, and next week's episode will pick up with the trial and the interview with Everett Shockley. The trial itself We will speak about it being the first case in Virginia's history about it being a conviction of 
a circumstantial case without no body. If you have any questions about, or if you have any information, I should say, about Gina Renee Hall, please call Captain Lawson at 1-540-731-3626. Again, the number is 1-540-731-3626. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. If this is your first time listening to it and would like to listen to more episodes, at All Things Erie from Erie PA, it's available on these platforms, podbean.com, iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook. Also, my sources will be available on my Facebook page. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at K-A-T-H-Y-B-R-D-L-Y. If you have any qu- comments or questions, please feel free to go to either of these and ask or comment away or even on my Facebook page. And remember, it's still hot out there and we haven't even gotten to August yet. Remember to check on your elderly neighbors and make sure the little ones have water and sunscreen and also make sure that you've checked on your pets. Also for those new pet owners that take their little dogs for a walk you might want might not know this but their little pads of their paws do burn just like yours if you're walking on hot asphalt. So stay safe, stay healthy. This is Kathy signing off.